Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Later today, of course, the January 6th committee will be having its hearing focusing on the role of extremists. And there are new polling out showing at least the headline in the New York Times is half of GOP voters ready to leave Trump behind poll fines. However, <laughs> these things always come with a big asterisk. Trump maintains his primacy in the party, hypothetical matchup against five other potential Republican rivals. 49% of primary voters said they would support him for a third nomination. So we know how this goes, but nobody knows how this goes better than our guest today. We are very, very lucky to have uh, as our guest on the Bulwark podcast, Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic, author of a blockbuster new book out today. Thank you for your servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. So first of all, congratulations on the book and thanks for coming on the podcast, Mark. It's a pleasure, Charlie. And, you know, it, everything I'm saying here is sort of in the seed corn of the bulwark and everything you've been saying for the last six, seven years. So I, I applaud you right back for that. Well, thank you. So let's let's just dive right in right before we began the podcast. You mentioned the chicken, the egg, the fundamental question that we keep coming back to about about Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party. And you correct me if I get this question wrong, but but basically the question is, is Donald Trump dominant in the Republican Party because he's just so darn popular or is he so popular because so many other Republicans refuse to stand up to him and in, in fact wave the white flag? What is the answer to that question? It feels like the circular question that we keep coming back to again and again and again. It is. Um, my answer to that is extremely slanted to to the latter, to the fact the white flag theory. You know, it, this whole book is basically about the white flag theory being that if the GOP weren't comprised of so many just shameless, you know, very weak toadies who who just have sort of thrown in with this guy over time or immediately and just over and over and over again, he wouldn't have survived all the things that he did and. Look, if there were a dozen Liz Cheney's, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they were, they would be as gifted as Liz Cheney because you know Liz Cheney, I think, has done everything right the last few months. But if there were more of them, if they were sustained, if Marco Rubio, if if Kevin McCarthy, if Mitch McConnell uh, really started a pretty profound drumbeat, you know, within a few days of of the last election, you know, this nightmare would be behind the Republican Party. And mm -hmm. make no mistake, this is a nightmare for the Republican Party. It might be enough to sort of push them over the finish line in this midterm in a very, very weak environment for, for Biden, obviously. I mean, the Democrats have a host of problems. But look, I think they've created this mess and the mess continues because they have done nothing to stop it. So many of our listeners may have read your earlier book, uh, the classic This Town. That's the, the 2012 book about Washington and the way you've described it uh, is about Washington at its seemingly grossest and most decadent <laughs> It was the pre-Trump capital of operatives, former office holders, minor celebrity journalists and Democrats sure. and Republicans promising change only to get co-opted and never leave. So I guess, has Washington changed or was this the Washington that was just ripe to be co-opted by a charlatan like Donald Trump? Donald Trump really perfected one thing, which was what it means to run against Washington. Barack Obama ran against Washington. George W. Bush ran against Washington. Bill Clinton ran against Washington. Ronald Reagan ran against Washington. Donald Trump took it up, as he does, to 11. What he did was 
he gave sort of cartoon, you know, imagery to what Washington was. He, you know, he actually called them the sleazeball capitalists, pointy-headed. You know, he would go after like Charles Krauthammer and and Karl Rove in, in very personal terms, and and he just really said these are really corrupt, terrible people. I mean, not not a lot subtle about Donald Trump, right? And. That's sort of what he did. I mean, he sort of applied the project of running against Washington to the Trump model. And it took, along with his other, I don't know, superpowers is the right word, but, but you know, his shamelessness, his, his survival instinct, his willingness to say anything. And lo and behold, you know, he sort of was seen as the drain the swamp guy when, in fact, as I, as I said before, that's sort of a derivative concept. I mean, everyone, I mean, that's a cliche that goes back decades. So, but I think, you know, Donald Trump, if he has another skill, it's to seize weakness in people or, or recognize right. weakness in people and then sort of exploit it to his ends and do it for as, as far as he can take it. So he, he looked at, at this Washington establishment and he saw weak, opportunistic throne sniffers mm-hmm. and has exploited that because that really is the yes. story. I mean, the theme of your book is Donald Trump's Washington and the price of submission. And all of these folks who he ran against in fact, you know, turned out to be pretty much the, what he thought they were. <laughs> I think yeah. with his with his re- reptilian instinct that if he bullied them and he rolled them, that they would come, you know, yeah. to kiss the ring, right? Absolutely, and and you know, I think I mean a lot of the early reporting for this book took place in 2016, and you know, it seems like 30 years ago, but it, it really was when the foundation for all of this was laid. And first, of all, I did I spent like three solid weeks with Trump for a New York Times Magazine profile I did on him. Um, I think that was actually late 15, and you know, it was just he, he was very generous with his time and access. I mean, he, he did not. I mean, it was refreshing at the time. But I remember once I said he, he looked at me and said. Yeah, I'm going to win. You know, I'm going to win. All these guys on the stage with me, and this was right after a debate, they're weak. I will bend them to my will. It might take a while, but look at them. They're going to, I will, I'll, I mean, I've, I'm used to guys 20 times tougher than him in New York real estate. You know, I thought it was bluster and so forth. Um, he turned out to be right. I mean, and, and, look, and if you sort of look at the way Marco Rubio was talking in like March, April of 2016, I mean, a completely defeated man so upset saying, you know, this is a strong man. This is where we're going to be regretting this for years. Uh, no way I'm coming back to the Senate. I mean, he, he wasn't going to run. Then mm-hmm. he sort of decided, oh, wait a minute, where, where's my parking space? And I need to run again. So he he ran again. Ted Cruz, you know, who I actually thought gave a very ballsy speech at mm-hmm. the Republican convention in Cleveland. And, and I remember them. I got really pissed off with the media. The media was like, "Oh, what a terrible disaster for Ted Cruz! He was booed off stage, and Heidi <laughs> Cruz was hounded out of the arena, and yeah. and oh, this is a bad look. This could end his career." And I'm like, "Wait a minute! First of all, he's sort of playing Trump's game. I mean, he's doing the professional wrestling heel turn thing, and you know, <laughs> who's the worst heel here, right? But look, it was you know, there are worse things to have on your bumper sticker than." you know, vote your conscience, which was his sort of takeaway line from that. And then, you know, he he flipped rather dramatically as Rubio did. As, as rather Lindsay dramatically. Did. Yeah, I mean, the whole crew. <laughs> so in that sense, Trump, you know, has, was proven 100% correct. 
So you mentioned that when you uh, spoke to Rolling Stone that you did not want to write a Trump book because Lord knows there have been enough Trump books. What you wanted to do is write a book about the people that permitted. And I think this is the extraordinary thing about the last few years is if you take the focus off of Donald Trump, who's frankly, look, he's Donald Trump is Donald Trump. I mean, he's living his best life. He's a billionaire. He's married to a supermodel. He flies around in his own jet. He's the president. Right. I mean, he does what he does. The extraordinary thing is that people who look at him who completely recognized who and what he is, decided to basically submit to him. And and this continues to be just a fascinating question. And people say, well, it's because they're cowardly or because it's the money or because they're, they're whatever. It's actually more complicated than that, isn't it? It is. There, there are many layers to the reasoning here. I mean, I think one thing you just can't discount is, is physical intimidation. I mean, there was a great hmm. story. Tim Alberta, my colleague at the mm-hmm. Atlantic, had a great story in the Atlantic on uh, Peter Meyer, who was the, um, you know, he's a sort of a very, I think, freshman congressman, Republican yep. from, from Michigan, uh, wealthy guy, uh, Meyer, what convenience stores is it? I think it was, I mean, you, I assume it's yeah. in Wisconsin. Grocery stores, yeah. They're Grocery everywhere. stores. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think he was one of the 10 impeachment voters in the House, the Republican mm-hmm. impeachment voters. And he, you had like freshman Republicans and young Republicans coming up to him, just not knowing what to do. Or of course, we're going to vote for certification because that's what everyone has always done. And there's no reason not to. But all of a sudden, you have Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and, and Jim Jordan and Paul Gosar saying, no way we're voting for certification. And then, you know, Trump makes it a requirement and McCarthy jumps on board. And all of a sudden you have these people saying, well, I got to vote against certification because I'm worried about my family and we're getting these death threats and I got kids and like, I don't have a big security detail. I just have like a mm. couple of aides mm-hmm. and um, I just can't do it. I'm worried about my family. And so they did. And, you know, to me, that's sort of a straight ahead thing that just gets missed. But that is the definition of authoritarianism. That is leadership by fear. That is not by debate, not by politics. It's just, you know, do the, don't do this and you or your family could be at risk. So there is that. Um, you know, I think people like Lindsey Graham, people like Marco Rubio have learned that, that they need to be, I mean, to use Lindsay's word relevant. We need to be relevant, and you know, Lindsay gets some it's real a fetish. It's a king. Yeah, whatever it is, can't you know? I love, I love <laughs> that person. It's a great word, but no, I mean, it's uh, there is real, real sort of you know warped kind of way spiritual nourishment that they get from you know, in Lindsay's case, being on a golf course with Donald Trump. Um, you know, getting getting to come back as a senator from Florida, Texas, where, wherever you're from, and. I don't know. There's also a path of least resistance here, too. It's just like, okay, I'm just going to keep my head down. Well, you know, I've thought about this a lot, that the that the founding fathers obviously thought that there were certain checks upon an out-of-control executive, including, you know, the jealousy of a co-equal branch of government that United States mm-hmm. senators, for example, Congress, would not want to think of themselves as potted plants or as, as supplicants, right. that they would push back, number one. And then secondly, and I think this feels very naive now to to say this, but you explored this in great detail, there would also be just the sense of one's legacy, how one would appear in history, that there would be a conscience that would say, this is wrong. I don't want to be remembered as a, you know, as a, as an ass kisser. I don't want to be remembered as somebody that just rolled over. Obviously, you have these senators who are willing to surrender in terms of institutional jealousy. But to this question about legacy, which you asked over and over again, you asked Lindsey Graham, you asked Kevin McCarthy about all of this. 
you know, they, you know, well, talk to me about this because this strikes me as the central question behind the book. Correct me if I'm wrong. You wrote the book, these ones, and, you know, why did you do this? And aren't you concerned how you will be remembered? Is this really the story you want to tell your grandkids, right? I mean, that's kind of the central question. Absolutely. I mean, that was like what you just said, sort of, why are you doing this? How do you want to be remembered? And then the third sort of question or, or sort of statement at the, at the core of this was they all knew better. Right. But um, I mean, to a person, they all expressed such sort of laughing, mocking contempt to the idea of legacy. I mean, I, I would ask people, how do you want to be remembered? Or any, do, do you worry that you will be sort of seen as the guy who lied for Trump or the guy who propped up Donald Trump? And they would look at me like I had two heads. I mean, I remember Kevin McCarthy was very dismissive of the question. He kind of ignored it. And he said, what would you ask me again? And we were eating ice cream in Bakersfield last year at some point. He, I said, you know, how do you want to be remembered? Legacy. He goes, oh, you mean like the Jeff Flake question? And I'm like, what? He goes, you know, everyone says, oh, Jeff Flake, what a, what a great hero. Jeff Flake, of course, a longtime House guy, senator from Arizona, a critic of Trump, wound up, you know, being unviable as a re-election candidate in Arizona, quit and not in the Senate anymore. But McCarthy said, you know, where's his statue at the Capitol? Are, are people going to remember him forever? So anyway, he, he had contempt for it. Rudy said this a million different ways in a million different interviews. Trump himself said it. Bill Barr said it. Lindsey said it. I mean, they just real contempt for the notion that there was anything beyond the day-to-day -day expediencies of pleasing Donald Trump and sort of winning the day, to use sort of the old sort of political playbook back at the inception uh, expression. Uh, but no, great contempt. Yeah, great contempt. So why? Is it because they just think that there is no historical memory or because they think they'll get to write their own history? Why, why would anyone a grown-up, somebody in this position, not think about how they will be remembered, how the, what their grandchildren will think? I mean, I think a lot of them are very limited psychological and intellectual thinkers in some okay. ways. I mean, I think people like, like Trump and Rudy are somewhat desperate older guys who were never terribly reflective to begin with. You have McCarthy, who, you know, I don't think has a lot of bandwidth you know, in, in either of those categories, you know, emotionally, intellectually, self-knowledge and, and, and so forth. And, you know, he's just sort of convinced himself that if he can become speaker, it's all redeemed. Nothing else matters. You know, Trump, I, I wouldn't call a, a paragon of psychological health. So you have a lot of that. But one thing I have found is sort of the, the people who have, I think, performed admirably and who do have sort of history in the back of their mind and doing, doing the right thing in the back of their mind are often people who are in legacy political families with a keen sense of history. Uh, Liz Cheney, uh, Mitt Romney, you know, both both are you know, children of, of very prominent and also principled politicians. Um, also people of faith. I mean, Romney's in that category. Jeff Flake's in that category. Um, yeah, even like, what's his name? Uh, Rusty, the, uh, Rusty Bowers. Sorry. Yeah, Rusty Bowers in that category. Um, and then a lot of military people. You have people who have seen war up close, who have fought, you know, valiantly for the country, you know, whether it's Adam Kingsinger or, or John McCain. And I mean, so those are the three kind of recurring categories. And then you have like a lot of career sort of business people or sort of very opportunistic politicians, you know, McCarthy, Graham, Trump, uh, who tend not to allow themselves to think behind, you know, beyond the blinders of just, you know, again, getting what's in front of them and, and sort of achieving whatever the goal that they need to achieve is. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a contrast between people who have sort of an independent identity versus those who are completely derivative, the, the pilot fish, who need to draw their, their meaning and their celebrity from someone else. Speaking of which, yeah, right. let's drill down on all of this, because your portrait of Lindsey Graham is is just a classic that, that, you know, when it came to Graham, no one worked harder at caring less. You write that this is not a Trump book, because it's about the people that enabled uh, Trump. Um, you know, that you didn't find Trump that captivating as a standalone character. Far more compelling to you were the slavishly devoted Republicans whom Trump drew to his side. And I, of course, share this. So let's talk about, you know, Lindsey, Kevin, you we talked about Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham. They had long been among the most supplicant super careerists ever to play in a city known for the breed and prove themselves to be the essential lapdogs in Trump's kennel. They are classically Washington types, fun to be around, starstruck, desperate to keep their jobs or get better ones. So tell me a little bit about Lindsey Graham, because I remember that moment of sort of cognitive you know, surprise when, when you know, he moved from being John McCain's closest friend to it felt like almost instantaneously being Trump's most eager golf buddy. Yeah, it, it really, first of all, the, the speed with which he would just go from John McCain's deathbed, essentially, to Donald Trump's backside, yeah. <laughs> it was just remarkable. I mean, and, and you know, there was some overlap, and, and McCain himself was not happy about it. I mean, the, their relationship was not perfect by mm. the end by any means. And, and he, you know, I, I think he expressed quite a bit to, to Lindsay what, you know, how he felt about what he was doing. And he said, you know, it's beneath you. Um and so forth. So, and, you know, look, uh, you mentioned a pilot fish. I mean, that's, that's an image that actually I saw, I think originally on a tweet from mm -hmm. Steve Schmidt of all people. Yeah. And I think he described Lindsay as a pilot fish. And basically a pilot fish is someone who lives off the detritus of the larger kingfish, right? Um, in the case of um, John McCain, you know, Lindsay was the professional sidekick to John McCain, and he he wrote it to great fame and and you know political. I mean, he he had a blast. He was always at John McCain's side, and then Trump was the the next guy. I mean, Graham himself said that he's always looking for alpha dogs. He said that in his own memoir. One of the things about writing a book like this, by the way, is you read memoirs that no one else is going to read, or you would never have read <laughs> otherwise. But you can mine things that are you know original source material, and it's like wow, it actually. That is worthwhile. But no, I mean, so a lot of politicians, even very successful and famous politicians, are purely derivative characters. And, you know, Lindsey Graham is sort of the ultimate at this point because he's a powerful, very prominent, very visible Republican senator, very relevant, to use his term, um, largely because of his relationship with Donald Trump. If that goes away, he's just another sort of non-leadership Republican in the Senate at this point. So I think the most interesting way you describe Graham is saying that he's always saying how important it was to get the joke about Trump, <laughs> getting the joke. Now, that's an old yeah. time-worn Washington expression. But right. what does Lindsey Graham mean when he, when he says, you know, you need to get the joke? Yeah. I mean, the joke always changes. And, and you know, there are different jokes for different contexts, right? But when I was writing this town, I mean, the joke was, oh, Tom Daschle and Trent Lott are in business together because they get the joke. They know that they might have been, you know, bitter adversaries for however many years in the Senate, but now that they're out of office, 
you know, they got the same agent. They, they have a lot, they share a lot of clients. They're yeah. making you know, $10 yeah. million. So that, that was the joke then back in those sort of harmless halcyon mm-hmm. days of, yep. <laughs> of the early teens. So much more innocent. Yeah. So much more innocent. I mean, comedy of manner. Mm-hmm. The joke now, I think overwhelmingly within the Republican party is that most of them know better. I mean, the ones who are elected to office all know better. They know that Donald Trump is at best not fit to be president at worst, a, you know, sort of, criminally, you know, just criminally dangerous imbecile. Um, and, but they don't, of course, you can never say that in public, but they that's all sort the, of know that's it. That's the joke. That's the joke. The joke is something you can't, it's a sort of an understood truth that is best not said, certainly not on the record. And, you know, there's also, there's a critical mass of like taped stuff now of people actually saying what they really feel, you know, that gets out in ways that they didn't want to. I mean, there was actually a great example in, in I think it was in the bulwark, right? Uh, Ron Johnson, after yep. the election, I think it was an activist who taped yeah. a conversation and he said, well, if I said the election was won by Joe Biden, it would be career suicide or something. And, you know, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns in their book, you know, they had McCarthy on tape. I mean, there, there's a fairly extensive body of work you know, that speaks to this directly. So you actually write about this, the, the gap between the public adoration expressed by Trump's Republican lickspittles, I love that word, mm-hmm. and the mocking mm-hmm. contempt they voiced for him in private could be gaping. Absolutely. So does Trump get the joke? Does he know that he is the joke? <laughs> I asked Graham that. He said, oh, absolutely, he gets the joke. You should come to dinner with us. And, you know, that I wrote, uh, I was never invited mm. to dinner. Um, now look, it's unclear if, if Donald Trump would, would define the joke the way I just did, right. Or the way Lindsay would. I mean, I, I do think that there have been instances where, where Trump has acknowledged that this is, you know, get a load of this act. I mean, Bill Barr said yeah. when his book came out that, you know, you always, Trump always said the tweets have to have just enough crazy in them, you know, knowing that, you know, if he went too far, it, it might have backlash. If he didn't go far enough, it would be boring. And I remember, you know, again, when I spent all this time with Trump in the campaign, he knows exactly where lines are. He, he does, I think, know what he's doing, which I guess speaks to him maybe getting the joke. But he would toggle between off and on the record all the time. Like he would say something really kind of out there and then he'd go off the record and he'd say, oh, my. And he'd say something that is wildly irresponsible that, you know, obviously I can't repeat, but it's just, uh, yeah. So he, he kind of knows what he's doing, but I, I also think that, you know, ultimately he's a dangerous character. Well, I mean, you, you quote Adam Kinzinger, you know, telling you that, you know, the vast majority in DC get the joke, including people like McCarthy and Graham, but the problem is the joke isn't even funny anymore. So the, the, we're we're in the midst of this investigation at January 6th, which is not funny at all. Um, where you had the president, this deranged president, pushing the the big lie and the the attack on on on, on the Capitol, and yet people like Lindsey Graham and Kevin McCarthy are absolutely unmoved by this. They still quote unquote get the joke. What is the joke there for them? <laughs> uh, you know, again, uh, these are again these are these are not terribly deep thinkers on yeah. these issues, but I, I would say that you know, again, McCarthy would just you know, very, very kind of put blinders on and say, speaker, I want to be speaker. I'll put up with all the crap I need to, all the indignity I need to, all the ridicule, scorn I need to. I don't care anyway, because I just raised $200 million for the Republican, you know, the, just the, the House you know, Republicans in, in their real life. So, you know, that that's his thing. Graham, again, he needs two things in his life. One, to be in the U.S. Senate. I mean, I think one of his colleagues said to me, you know, there's no one who needs to be here more desperately than Lindsey Graham. And this is a friend. Um, 
but you know, he doesn't have a family. He, he doesn't have much of a life. sort of foundation yeah. outside of, you know, his life in the Senate. And, and also, you know, he needs to be relevant. He needs to be at the dice table, as he says, right? I mean, John McCain's always saying, John McCain's favorite game with dice. You, it becomes addictive. You want to be sort of in the middle of things. And, you know, being on the golf course with Donald Trump is, uh, is the price of submission for him. It, you know, it keeps him relevant. It keeps him, you know, keeps him getting up in the morning, I guess. Well, a lot of these people did talk to you, and you, you, you told Vanity Fair that you weren't sure why people talked to him for the interviews over the past three or four years, although... I've been saying that for years. I, I mean, I literally, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I mean, seriously, like 20 years covering politics, I wrote a book on the NFL a few years ago, and all mm-hmm. these... I got a lot of access, and it was like, why haven't they, like, Googled you? But I, know, I guess I just have this irresistible... I mean, people have either a sadistic, you know, desire, desire to embarrass themselves, or I just have this... this charm who knows or, or, or they they think they have the superpower of being able to look i will charm these other you know these other <laughs> folks so so you, right. you you also talk about since we're talking about lindsey graham and kevin mccarthy you also write about you know marco rubio or elise stefanik and mm-hmm. you, when you see them on tv you wrote there's a lot of cognitive dissonance you you said that you think they respect the hell out of Liz Cheney, but at the same time they made the decision they needed to that's that is kind of interesting do you think elise stefanik really does still, or, or, or she managed to yeah. shove that down so far. I mean, how, oh, how, I don't, how, how does it work? <laughs> yeah, I don't doubt that they've shoved it down really, really mm-hmm. far. Um, no, don't get me wrong. But mm-hmm. no, look, these are smart. I, you know, these are smart and serious people, and they made a different choice. And they all respect the hell out of Liz Cheney, just based on what huh. they said about her as recently as two years ago. Okay. I mean, at least Stefanik, I mean, you know, Liz Cheney was her, was her idol in the house. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, at least Stefanik, first of all, I think was quite overrated a couple of years ago. I mean, I remember I did, I was doing a story on Paul Ryan in 2018 mm-hmm. and my first exposure to her was they kind of queued up Elise Stefanik as like a great Paul Ryan Republican. She's trying to get women into the party. She's, you know, she was a big Rubio supporter in, in 2016. And, uh, I interviewed her. She, she was terrible. I mean, she was, it was a terrible interview. Um, yeah. and then, but then I remember thinking, all right, well, you know, she's gone that first impeachment committee. Maybe this will be your time to shine. And I remember uh, being in the room and just sort of watching her and just feeling my heart drop. I'm like, Oh, she's that person now. She really must want this number three job. But look, I don't know. I mean, I will say this about Liz Cheney. You know, she, I think, is one of the most admired politicians in the country right now. I mean, she just got a standing ovation at the Reagan Library two weeks ago, you know, two weeks after she got a standing ovation at the Kennedy Library, two weeks before that, as she received the Profile and Courage Award. Now, you could mm-hmm. say, okay, coastal, elites, okay, Simi Valley, Boston, who cares? Uh, you know, what's that going to get you among the tiny, you know, electorate of Wyoming? Now, you know, very well could get her beat. But, you do sort of wonder if there is a place that, that a lot of these people have where they would switch places with her if they if they could. Um, not that they ever would have, but, I mean, it's quite a thought exercise that I obviously would get answers to. Well, you sat down with her, and uh, she told you, and I think accurately, by the way, that you know, one of the decisive moments in this whole uh, you know, process of submission was Kevin McCarthy's visit down to Mar-a-Lago after uh, January 6th. And she said uh, that when we look back, Kevin's trip to Mar-a-Lago uh, will turn out to be a key moment. Uh, and she yeah. said it would, it, would, it would go down as one of the most shameful episodes in one of the country's most shameful chapters. Um, 
because more than anybody, McCarthy ensured that the Republican Party would remain stuck in this post-election purgatory. Uh, I mean, so I, I guess there, there, there's a parallel here. Lindsey Graham, the night of January 6th, or was mm-hmm. it the morning of January 7th, you know, said, I'm, I'm finished. I am done with Trump. Kevin McCarthy, you know, clearly was disgusted, said things about mm-hmm. Trump. And yet within days, both of them had flipped back. What happened? What was what was that <laughs> dynamic? Because that is so central to everything yeah. we're talking about right now. It really is. I mean, first of all, one of the most overused but also pertinent expressions we've heard over the last few years is off ramp. Okay, yeah. you know, oh, access Hollywood I, is going to be off ramp. Yeah, yeah, we all have. I mean, you know, that's you know, people are going to give up on Trump after access Hollywood is their off ramp. Yeah. Then you know, okay, he lost the election. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, the, the, it, defeat. Yes. Defeat. You know, yeah. three days later, it's like I mean, you know, first of all. <laughs> I mean, Republicans stood by Richard Nixon until they didn't. I mean, the reason he actually walked away, I mean, he could have, if he had Fox News and he had a supplicant to Republican Party as, as Trump does now, you know, who knows if Nixon could have survived. But I mean, you know, there was a seminal moment where, first of all, there were some very surprising defections in the House, you know, mainly the father of, of Larry Hogan, who was a, mm-hmm. kind of a backbencher from Maryland, sort of said, yeah, I'm voting for the impeachment articles, uh, first Republican to do so. And then, you know, Barry Goldwater and a few other leaders in the House, Republicans, walked over to the White House and said, Mr. President, it's over. And that was it. I mean, if Mitch McConnell and, and Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and a couple of other prominent senators walked over to the White House and said, Mr. President, it's over, would things have changed if they had all sort of said publicly immediately what everyone knew to be true, what they knew to be true public? I mean, that was an off-ramp. But if if that wasn't January 6th, I mean, oh, my God, you remember how people were talking in those days? I mean, it was stunning. I mean, it wasn't just the stuff caught on tape. It was everyone, everyone. And, you know, I I do think people, including me, emphasize and sort of deconstruct the Mar-a-Lago visit. You know, I have that visual attached to it that's particularly pathetic. But, you know, Mitch McConnell should get more blame than I think he does. He... You know, he wanted it. He wanted to impeach. He wanted to convict. He wanted this done. He wanted the Democrats to sort of lead on it. He said, "We're going to take care of the son of a bitch." That was in um, that was in the, the Martin Burns mm-hmm. book. And um, you know, he said, "Well, wait a minute, though. We're not going to do an impeachment because we, you know, we have like a week, but we'll just wait till after the election." And yeah, you, know, you could have done it in a few days. I mean, they all lived through that. It's not like you needed. It's not like the case wasn't made, right? But apparently enough Republicans got to him saying, you know, we don't want to take this vote. So he goes, all right, we're going to kick it to after the election, at which point everyone had the built-in excuse. Well, he's a former after president. The inauguration. After the yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and so McConnell, you know, basically queued that up. And then a week later, he's like, of course I will support the nominee in 2024 if it's uh, Donald Trump. So, you know, again, this all happens before the end of January, pretty much. I mean, I might have bled into February a little bit. Well, it was but. eight days, right? I mean, it was, it was eight, <laughs> eight days. McCarthy yeah. was at Mar-a-Lago eight days after he, you know, claimed that he asked Trump to resign. Eight freaking days. Eight freaking days. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was, uh, I remember, I think it was Adam Schiff who said to me, you know, I feel like the, we lost the country twice in the last five years. One was when Trump was elected and two, when everyone just decided to fold their tents like just a few days after January 6th. And it was like, oh, there's there's more of this. So this goes back to exactly where we began, this question. Mm -hmm. Did this happen because Trump is so overwhelmingly powerful or because they all surrendered? So let's do a a counterfactual. If, in fact, Kevin McCarthy would have stood up, if, in fact, uh, Mitch McConnell would have done his duty and, and Lindsey Graham would have stayed off the reservation, if other people... If everybody, all of these leaders, if they had led the way to the off ramp, 
would how would history have been different? How would our current moment be different if they had done that? I, I think he'd have to leave. I mean, he would have no option. There would probably wouldn't be a January 6th. I mean, you know, it would not be clean by any chance, by any stretch. I mean, you know, maybe Trump would have some kind of, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I shouldn't say that about January 6th. I mean, I have no, I have no yeah. doubt that Trump would try to or- orchestrate some wildly irresponsible, potentially violent event um, around his rejection. But, um, you know, he is someone who, uh, he's, he takes what he's given. He, he gives, he sure. takes what's allowed, right? And, I, I, but I, you know, I just think if the party said we're done, he would have been done. I mean, he might've broken away and said, all right, we now have a Trump party and, you know, Ron and McDaniel would have freaked out and Kevin McCarthy would have freaked out and the party might, you know, be in real short-term trouble, but ultimately, you know, it would be something resembling the Republican party that a lot of people grew up with. And that, you know, I, there are parts of the Republican party that I think are extremely, um, vital, important to the legacy of the country and, and, and conservatism for starters. And and I think it's just sort of gone. Well, this is what's painful about the question, because if they would have done the pivot, say, on January 7th and stuck with it, you know, he would be gone. There would have been a fracturing Absolutely. of the party, at least short term. But then they would have pivoted, as they always do, into being anti-Biden. And of course, now we know that Biden's given them plenty of material. So their their fracturing would have come together being, you know, being in opposition is what they do the best, being in opposition. So yep. they would be looking at these midterms as a Biden referendum, as opposed to Trump hanging over them. And that's what I want to talk about, where the Republican Party is right now with Trump. But before we move on to the current state of the Republican Party, we've been talking about the price of submission. We've talked about the the real sycophants, the real the real turd polishers in the Trump war. But but Paul Ryan, talk to me about Paul Ryan, because you, you have a dazzling detail in your book about Paul Ryan telling you that he was sobbing while he watched January 6th. So where, where do you put Paul Ryan in this whole process? You know, it, it, there is a continuum here, right? I mean, you know, Paul Ryan, better than Kevin McCarthy, um, worse than John McCain, right? I mean, it, it's not that simple. I mean, these are human beings, right? And Paul right. Ryan, um, you know, deeply flawed. I, I was, I think a lot of people were disappointed in him as speaker in the first two years, I think both from the right and from the left, obviously. Um, it was a tough job. It was an impossible job. He didn't like the job and ultimately he quit the job and he sort of became, I mean, he became a bystander, basically. He, he left, mm-hmm. he, he went into private life. And, um, you know, I've, I've known him over the years. I mean, I knew him when he was Mitt Romney's running mate. I, I spent a lot of time with him in 18 during his last months in office. I mean, you've obviously known him longer, Charlie, but it, it's, uh, you know, he, he's seen this, I mean, he's young still relatively, but he's been really present at the inception of all this. He, uh, and the destruction. I sort of, you know? the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I, I visited him a couple uh, months ago, um, in his, I guess we were in a restaurant somewhere and he, he told me this and he said, look, it was a devastating thing to watch. And I just sort of, you know, my, my, my emotions sort of boiled over and, and there I was sobbing. I mean, I'm not John Boehner. I was, I was like, I'm not a crier, but there I was. And I saw my old security detail getting, getting, you know, beat up. And, uh, I wrote them all emails cause I figured they weren't getting any love. And, you know, he, he, he a lot of his friends were, were injured and just a lot of them just freaked out. And at some point, you know, I just said, you know, were any of these tears of complicity. I mean, could, could you have done more? Should you have done more when you were speaker? I mean, yes, you got tax reform. Um, 
done. Um, but you know, maybe, you know, do you, do you think about that? And he said, yeah, he didn't want to go there really. And then of course, you know, he's on the Fox news board, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, which is the ongoing thing. And yeah, I don't know how much money they're, they're paying him, but he, he's still there. Um, and to me, that's a really hard thing to reconcile. Did you ask him about that? I did. I did. He didn't want to go there. He just didn't uh, want to so, talk about it. See, this is, this is the thing about Paul is that Paul's instincts are, are, are good. He, he mm-hmm. sees this and, and, uh, and I don't doubt that story that he reacted that way. And then the question is, and then what, and then what did you do? You're on the Fox board. Um, did you speak out? I mean, you're a major mm-hmm. voice in the Republican party, unless you feel that you're not anymore or whatever. Um, yeah. he, he, he could have said these things publicly at the time. He could have said it forcefully at the time. He could have been one of these thought leaders, you know, back then, you know, pushing mm-hmm. the off ramp or as a member of the Fox board, when Tucker Carlson began doing the revisionist history of uh, of January sixth, um, that would have been a moment, right, to draw a red line. I mean, you this is think. this is somebody who used to be. I mean, I used to introduce him for his event, yeah. saying how extraordinary it is that we have this intellectual leader of the Republican Party who is also right. the most powerful, you know, Republican speaker. This is an extraordinary mm-hmm. moment, and that just seems wow. That seems so yeah. last century I mean, now. Look, there are certain people who are not suited to the moment. Um, Paul Ryan's sort of a classic example who is not suited to this particular moment. Um, you know, he's much more suited to 2010, you know, whatever that was, right? Yeah. Um, maybe maybe before, maybe when Jack Kemp, you know, I mean, he had all, the, mm-hmm. all those idols, you know, the supply side idols and so forth. You know, it's funny. Uh, the, the answers I've heard him give on the Fox thing, and he sort of gave me a variation of this, was something to the effect of, well, I'm one of the adults in the room. It's important to have, you know, same thing you would hear about the, the White House. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm in the White House, but I'm trying to, like, have a moderating effect on Donald Trump. And you should see all the things that right. I've prevented. I mean, and Ryan used to say that all the time when he was speaker. He said, you know, and he said this on the record to me, I think, in 18. He said, you know, well, I, I can say that I pre- prevented that tragedy and that tragedy and that tragedy. I'm mm-hmm. like, wait, what tragedies are you talking about, I'm speaker, Mr. Speaker? And he goes, well, I, I've already said too much. I think that's in the book too. Okay, so how do you feel about this whole? Um, you know, I was the adult in the room, the rationalization of of people in the Trump org. Because you know, one yeah. of the things we're learning in, about you know January sixth is you know, thank goodness we did have some adults yeah. in the room. We did mm-hmm. have those those folks from the DOJ. We did have Pat Cipollone in the room. Yeah. On the other hand, my sense is that a lot of the people who told themselves they were the adults in the room actually were just telling themselves a you know, a, a convenient story to rationalize going along with all of this. So how do you feel about the, the yeah. rationalizers versus the people who really were making a difference? You know, I, I think <laughs> I think they're a lot of the same in some ways. I mean, I, I've had a little bit of an evolution on my contempt or maybe le- my contempt for the adults in the room types. You know, my first reaction was, all right, great. You're just justifying it. You know, I, I don't believe that you're pushing back all that hard in private. And I think that's, I mean, I don't believe Kevin McCarthy pushes back in private against Donald Trump the way he claims he is. But, you know, as a practical matter, as we're learning more about what happened between January 6th and, well, maybe between January, say, 1st and, you know, January 20th, the sort of adults in the room became sort of the land the plane types, meaning yeah. we just got to do everything possible to get to January 20th. And, and Lindsay, I wouldn't know if I'd say to his credit, but he was definitely a land the plane type. I mean, he was working pretty closely with Ivanka, 
with Meadows, with McConnell, I guess. I mean, McConnell had his own interests, the, the Georgia Senate runoff. But, you know, we said we got to keep him occupied. We got to keep him feeling good about himself. I mean, it was classic toddler in chief <laughs> stuff, right? Dan Dresner, shout out. Yeah. But it was like, okay, we're going to send him to the border so he can do like a, like a sort of chest thumping rally about how much wall he's built, which of course is bullshit because Obama built more wall. But, you know, we got to keep them occupied, get to January 20th, land the plane. There was a big Mark Milley uh, line, right? And, you know, to me, that was an important and very precarious time in Washington. I mean, I, I live been, lived in Washington for a quarter century. That was scarier than after 9-11. I mean, that was, you know, <laughs> Al-Qaeda was some sort of, or the terrorists were sort of like a dark, shady enemy somewhere. I mean, you know, the guy everyone was scared of was sitting in the Oval Office. Yeah. And God knows what he'd do. And, and you know, we, we now know what he was trying to do. So, um, you know, I do think in, in very acute circumstances like that, I, I am not going to rule out the, the fact that people like Lindsey could be real forces for good. Um, but, you know, does that excuse everything else? I don't think so. Um, but, you know, so I guess my thinking's evolved a little bit on that. But, but mostly I think it's an excuse and I think it's bullshit. So you, you mentioned how alarming that period was, um, and, and, and we're learning you know, every day about how serious this attempt to overturn the election was, how obsessed uh, Donald Trump was. And, and the January 6th committee is laying out all of this evidence. We'll get more today. We'll get more next week as well. What effect, if any, is this having on the Republican electorate slash establishment? And you can interpret that any way you, yeah. you, you like. As this is coming out, are they paying it? I mean, look, there's obviously different answers. I mean, some people aren't paying attention anymore. Is it creating, do you get any sense that it's creating the sense of like, maybe now would be a good time to yeah, move yeah. on? Or are they just so locked in that nothing makes a difference anymore? First of all, I, I do think it's making a difference. And I did yeah. not expect that I would be saying this a month or two ago. Um, I, I mean, I there's some very, very, I think, revealing poll numbers that say, you know, I mean, I mean, Trump's culpability on this and people's caring about this in some recent polling is much higher than I would have thought. And I think part of that is just, just how well done these things have been. I mean, they just all sat back and it's been a, it's been a, I think a model hearing. Um, and the witnesses have been compelling. The witnesses have been Republicans. The witnesses have been, you know, they've been elected officials. They've been nobodies. They've been, you know, Cassidy Hutchison. They've been the nameless election worker in you know, Georgia. I mean, it's Rusty Bowers. I mean, so forth. So, you know, I think they have really moved the needle. I, I don't, um, I mean, you know what would really move the needle, though? I mean, I, I, I do think that that there is kind of an avalanche effect here, um, you know, and, and Pat Cipollone is probably more likely to testify after Cassidy Hutchinson and who knows who else could come forward. I just think if a fairly normal kind of high profile but not that high profile member of Congress or the Senate just said, you know what, I'm, I've had enough. I think – what they're doing is great. I think we need to look at look at this, talk about this. Say, if John Cornyn, I mean, yeah, right. random name out of so mm -hmm. John Cornyn or anyone else, just sort of said, John Cornyn said, you know, I think that this is disqualifying. I think this is appalling. I think we need to be paying attention to this. I think this is something that's more important than really anything else. I mean, certainly more important than like Hunter Biden's laptop or or whatever. I mean, I, this is an outrage and. You know, sometimes, and and I've sort of in, in doing this book, I've researched a lot of how authoritarian regimes and how cults sort of break up. And usually, it's just sort of 
over time and there are quiet defections here and there and you know there are there are big developments but but mostly it's the people you don't expect it's the the larry hogan's dad during watergate it's um it's the cassidy hutchinson's now maybe i I don't know but i do think that the idea that no republican in the house or senate has dared say anything about what we're seeing in these hearings is is just a stunning indictment and i also think it's it's getting increasingly untenable you know, given the mountain of evidence we're seeing presented and the compellingness of the witnesses. So is it is it a sort of a break the glass thing, though, that, that when somebody does it, that others will follow? Yeah, I think so. The, I mean, the, again, Johnson said when the herd moves, it moves. <laughs> you know? Exactly. I mean, yeah, it, it, I mean, the, the unwillingness of the herd to move in the Republican Party has been stunning to me. And, and you know, I've, I've been sort of saying this. It's it's not like examples of courageous behavior and character are are not all around us among you know conservatives whether it's cassidy hutchinson or rusty bowers or the british you know conservatives saying all right enough's enough here and you know outside of political context i mean ukraine right i mean i remember i was writing the end of this book and my last visit to the trump hotel was the night the um russian invasion commenced and, hmm. and everyone was watching these explosions on the on the soundless tvs at the trump hotel and and um it was like wow okay so this is what a ty- this is what a uh, a tyrant does and you know vladimir putin will do everything you know until he's told to stop and wow there's a resistance that's this is what resistance looked like i mean Vladimir Zelensky is actually right there with you, fighting right there with yeah. you, as opposed to, you know, the, um, you know, Trump, you know, going back to the White House and watching on TV, no matter how much he made, might have wanted to go to the Capitol. But I don't know. I, I just think that the examples around going on in the news have been actually pretty conspicuous in in putting into focus the, the cowardice of the Republicans. So your John Cornyn scenario is not likely to happen, is it? I mean, yeah. somebody saying, you know, this is disqualifying. However, I can certainly imagine senior Republicans saying, you know what, it's time to move on. OK, it, it's it's time to give him the gold watch. I, I can see that because what I pick up talking to Republicans is just kind of a weariness. They don't want to take a leading role, but boy, they yeah. would rather turn the page. They, they're they looking at these poll numbers and they're seeing that, that Joe Biden, who is like just absolutely cratered in the poll, is still leading mm-hmm. Donald Trump. So basically, yeah. you know, if Republicans begin to think, hey, you know what, we're going to win the midterms, we're going to win the presidency back with one possible exception. Donald mm-hmm. Trump may be the only guy who is going to blow it. And you look at these numbers, 66% of voters say that Trump attempted to overturn the election. 66% claimed the election was fraudulent. There's the Politico Morning Consult poll. 44% of Republicans say that Trump lied about the election results. So I want to get your reaction to this one, though. The the, the New York Times-Siena College poll shows that half of Republicans are, you know, are are looking for somebody else for president. So that's the anti-Trump news. Mm-hmm. But he still is way ahead of everybody. So half half full, half empty. Where where is this going? That's I mean, there's some big warning signs for Trump. But oh, yeah. if he, he still has forty to fifty percent of the Republican electorate, he will sweep the primary field. So he, where is it going, Mark? You know, I, I think if Trump wants the nomination, he will get it. I mean, I that to me, I think, you know, yes, there are warning signs, but. The really only scenario where he is denied from in a primary is if, uh, okay, so Ron DeSantis decides that, okay, I'm running for president, 
And uh, Ted Cruz and Mike Pence decide, well, the only way Trump is going to win is if uh, there's a crowded field that are of non-Trumpers. So I better step aside. I mean, is that something Ted Cruz is going to do? Is that something Mike Pence is going to do to sort of give up their their dream for for Ron DeSantis? Um, So and I also think Ron DeSantis and we were talking about this a little before. I mean, I, I don't think Ron DeSantis is the juggernaut. Everyone seems to think he is. You know, I think if you talk to Republicans who served with him in Congress, uh, he's got a weird personality. He's really he's it's not warm. Um, he's kind of a hard guy to warm up to. Um, and, you know, a lot of Republican governors I've talked to have said the same thing. So you do wonder how a guy like them, him can scale on a national, you know, on a national level. Uh, he also, you know, his reelection is, is no short thing this year. I mean, he's pretty close to Charlie Crist, who is a deeply fought, you know, flawed candidate. Um, but they're really close. So. Who knows? And, and then, but think about like what Trump could do to him. But I, I think, you know, one, I think there's a really good chance of a crowded field, uh, which essentially will ensure Trump just sort of walking to victory. And even if there isn't a crowded field, I just sort of see him, you know, really just a, in a much stronger position than, than a potential challenger if there were one or two. I mean, to your point about DeSantis, I've kind of been walking around this by pointing out all of the other candidates, you know, who have uh, looked really good on paper and then right. you know, go into the presidential campaign and fall apart. I mean, we all remember, you know, President yeah. uh, John Conley or President Fred Thompson. <laughs> remember when Rick Perry was um, oh, you know, yeah. the leading candidate? I mean, you could do this great, over and over and over president. again. There's a yeah. big leap from being a governor to being a presidential candidate. And Ron DeSantis is, as one of his former colleagues described, he's an unsmiling asshole. He doesn't display <laughs> one on television. He really is. And, and that, yeah. that, that, that personality <laughs> is not necessarily going to play that, 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 that well. Yeah. I, I, I've you know, heard the same. I mean, I don't, I personally don't see it, but you know, I, what do I know? So, I mean, President Jeb Bush might have something to say about this. Well, President right? Jeb Bush, President Teddy <laughs> Kennedy. I mean, you think oh, of all yeah. of these guys. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Wesley Clark was uh, the leading yeah, Democratic yeah. candidate. For, for oh, my God. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I remember going to a rally for him that uh, Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen were in in the middle of New Hampshire. I'm like, oh, he's got Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. I mean, some old Arkansas connection. And like, Yeah, the Clark administration was great. For it was, it was. Up there in New Hampshire. Mark Leibovich's new book is Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Uh, you ought to read this in uh, in conjunction with the earlier classic, This Town. Uh, Mark is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you so much for coming on the Bulwark podcast today. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, we'll see you soon. The Bulwark podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.